Well, I'm glad everyone has come for a Sunday dinner. We, as you might know, we're having steak and lamb and bird. Just joking. Finding Nemo is a story of two clownfish. It's a movie that you might have seen where Nemo, a son, wanted an adventurous life. But his father, Marlin, wanted nothing more than his son to be safe at all times and in all situations. But Nemo wanted more than what his father offered him. And so one day he swam into the open water and he touched what he thought was a butt. But of course, it was a boat. But what Nemo didn't realize is that when he swam into open water, he swam out of the safety of the Great Reef, the home in which he and his father lived. And his father could no longer protect him in the open water. And when Nemo went and touched the boat, he was scooped up by the humans on the boat. The rest of the movie is a witness of Nemo's redemption, a father's relentless journey of finding, saving, and rescuing his son. Marlin did everything in his power to rescue his son and bring him back home. It's a touching story of a father's boundless love for his son. He went head-to-head -head with sharks. He almost lost his life when he swam through a swarm of jellyfish. He even rode what was terrifying to him, the EAC, the East Australian Current. But Marlin was, doing, was willing to do anything in his power to rescue his son, to bring him back home. What we saw last week in our quick summary of the entire book of Exodus, is that where Leviticus is placed within the five books of the Pentateuch, of Moses' five books, is that the story that where we come to it is the story of God using everything in his power to bring his son, Israel, back home. Back into his presence. And his presence is not in a reef, but a place where they could live together where they could once again dwell among each other in a place like Eden. What the book of Exodus revealed was God's relentless efforts, his amazing power to redeem his son. For the Lord desires nothing more than to redeem his children to himself that he might delight in them. And I wonder if this is how you understand God. Last week, we looked at God as holy. He is holy. He is completely other. He is holy in and of himself, absolute purity, purity by nature, free from stain, free from blemish, free from spot, holy, Perfect, immaculate, pure, immutable. But I wonder how often we misunderstand God's holiness. Of course, God cannot come into contact with anything unholy. For the scriptures proclaim, if he does, his holiness becomes a consuming fire, devouring and purifying 
that which is not like him. And we, because of our sin and of our rebellion, we are unable to approach him as he is and as we are. But if I wonder, I wonder if we view and understand the way that the book of Leviticus reveals our God. Our God who is our king and who is our father and desires nothing more than to be with his people. The story of Exodus is a story of rescue, of bringing his people home. And I fear, what I fear is that when we see God, when we understand him in, in his holiness, all we see him at as is an angry father who hates us, who's wringing his hands, wanting nothing more than to bring his judgment upon his disobedient, his disobedient children. I often wonder if we don't view his holiness and his grace together. So often it's so easy to see him in his holiness, his hatred of sin, and confuse it with his hatred for us. But don't you see? Don't you see that this God in Leviticus is not the God that we conjure up in our minds? This isn't the God that we find anywhere in the Bible. Here, God reveals himself as a God like Marlin or Marlin like God, who will do anything, no matter what the cost, to save his people from their sin. Leviticus reveals a holy God that loves you and wants nothing more than you to be able to come to him. In his holiness, he hates your sin, but he desires and loves and finds delight in you. And do you know how we see this? The very first verse of chapter 1. The Lord has descended upon the tent of meeting in Exodus 40. His glory filled it, filled it so much that Moses could not enter into the tent of meeting. But what do we find in verse 1 of chapter 1? The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He called him and said, come unto me. I have made a way. He has established his covenant with them. He has enabled it so that he could dwell once again with his people. And what's the first thing he do, does? He calls his people to draw near to him. What we find in Leviticus 1 seems strange. Please don't ever ask me to flay your beef. But what we find is God's unwavering pursuit and love and cherish for his people. And what we celebrate as a church today is that God gave his people what they needed most. He made a way through Jesus. 
He's made a way for us to have so much more in Jesus. He has made a better way than what we find in Leviticus 1. He doesn't call us from his tent of meeting, nor does he call us as, through Moses as our mediator. Moses was called by God. He received God's word. He was told to give the Israelites the word of the Lord, but we have something so much better in Christ. He is the word that came to dwell among his people, to call his people to himself. He called Moses as a king summons his servant. And now in Christ, he calls us to be his bondservants in Christ. He called Moses as a father calls the son, and he calls us as sons and daughters, who through faith in Christ, he says unto us, I am well pleased. God desires nothing more than you, you in his presence. And as I say it every single week, and I'm going to say it again in just a moment, Christ says to you, come unto me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls the Lord wants you. He has made a way. But the text is quite clear. Unlike what we might be tempted to say in our culture, and what, unfortunately, some churches say, even though they say it meaning the right thing, typically what we say is, come to the Lord as you are. But that's not what this text says. Right? The text says, God said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, when any one of you brings an offering before me, you shall bring an offering of your livestock from the herd of, or from your flock. If he is offering a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He doesn't just get to waltz into the presence of God in any way that he wants. No, he must bring a sacrifice so that he might be accepted before the Lord. He has called us to himself, but he has called us to bring something. As many of you know, I, I have fallen in love with cooking and smoking things on a smoker. And one of the things I d that I love to smoke the most is a brisket. And if you want, I'll share it with you. I have on my phone a step-by-step -step process beginning the day before I start smoking the brisket all the way up to the six hours that I let it rest in a cooler. I have a step-by-step -step process of how to get the best brisket that I know how to make. I don't always follow a recipe, but I follow a recipe when I want when I have a desired outcome to happen every single time. Well, in Leviticus 1, in a sense, we have God's recipe for his people with a desired outcome, the atonement of their sins. This is a step-by-step -step 
process in which the people of God can come into God's presence following his word, following his recipe, following his law, that they might once again be reconciled together. And what we have here is great details that Israel must follow. Israel comes as a guilty party who have offended God. And as the offending, as the offender, they come before him and God, by his grace, by his grace, receives an offering. He doesn't have to give them a way to reconciliation, but by his grace, he has made a way. He desires an outcome of reconciliation. He desires to atone them from their sin. This is what's so great about this book. This book reveals the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Here he is dealing with their iniquity. Here he is dealing with their sin. Here in his sight they are bringing an offering and he brings grace and showers them with love. And he didn't have to. He chose to. Because he loves his people. This is what we find here. God has found a way to dispense his grace upon his people. This burnt offering that we have here in Leviticus 1, this is the first of five offerings. It's foundational for all the others, and in fact, it's the oldest practice of offerings we see as we can look back to Noah in chapter 8 who offered a burnt offering to the Lord. And in it, an animal is given. And the, and the Lord says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of it, the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw it against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons, Aaron's sons will put it on the altar. They'll burn it and everything is consumed. And it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then he gives similar instructions in verses 10 to 13. If you bring something from the flock. And then he brings more instructions from verses 14 to 17. If you were to bring a bird. But let us not be mistaken. You can't just bring any animal. It must be one of these animals. And not only can it be just any animal, it must be a male animal. And not only can it be just any male animal, it must be a male animal without blemish. It cannot be blind, and it cannot be lame, it cannot be sick. Nor can you bring the offering anywhere. You must bring it to a specific place. Notice, there is a proper way that God has set in his word for his people to come into his presence. 
Not only must they bring an animal, not only must they bring an animal to the tent of meeting, but they also must lay their hands. Literally, the, the word means they must lean their hands upon this animal, establishing a connection between the offerer and the animal, a relationship with it. That when that animal is sacrificed and accepted favorably, the one who offered it is also accepted favorably in the sight of God. God in his grace has made a way for his people. He allows atonement to be made. And what does the offerer rely upon? The promises of God. This is what he says. God promises it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. God promises to remove their guilt and their shame. God promises to restore them, to reconcile them to himself. Yet what they must do is very costly. This entire sacrificial system was given to them to teach them that what God demanded of them was their best and nothing less. If you, had a, if you have a herd, you must bring from the herd a bull. If you had a flock, you must bring from your flock. If you didn't have either, if you couldn't afford either of those, you were to bring a bird. They were not to give a bird if they had a goat. They were not to give a goat if they had a bull. Do you see, the list goes from the most valuable to the least valuable. But also what they see is that they cannot cut corners. This is exactly what Malachi prophesied against. The people, their heart had become hardened. And they were bringing the lame and the blind animals. And isn't that what we do so often? As Kevin DeYoung says, we tend to give God the leftovers. When we come before the Lord, we don't bring our best. We bring him our garage sale. All the things that we don't want, all the things that we're not interested in, that towel that's been used too many times for us to use anymore, maybe someone will pay us 50 cents for it. Those toys that stopped working long ago, all the junk that we've accumulated that we no longer want, but we think, well, our trash might be someone else's treasure. And so we just get rid of it to make a dollar. Is this the way that we give to the Lord? Are we minimalists in what we bring into his presence as a sacrifice? Are we minimalists in our salvation? Do we do the least amount we have to do just so we can still go to heaven? Do we do the least amount we can do to appease the Lord? Do we do or give the least amount we can possibly give just so that we don't feel guilty? Where is that bar? I mean, how much do we really have to give? It's all by grace, isn't it? But when we do that, what we're saying is, I want salvation. I want redemption. I want to do as little as possible, but I really want nothing to do with God himself. 
if we're only giving his, him our leftovers? Does that reveal a heart of love for our great Redeemer? But this isn't what God requires of his people. And this isn't what God requires of us. Our God requires of us that which is costly to us. God demands from us our best. God demands from us the unblemished. God demands that which is most valuable. God demands we give him everything. The whole burnt offering was consumed. Nothing was left. He demanded his people to come to him, to offer to him that which he supplied for their livelihood. If you raised, male, if you raised animals, a male animal was very valuable. Especially the good ones. But this is what the Lord required of his people. But do you know what the Lord desired even more? was the heart of his people. He wanted them to desire to give to him their best. He wanted them to desire to give him all that they had, not merely to meet their requirements, not merely to be the bare minimalist, but out of joy, because God had made a way for them. He wanted them to give them everything. It isn't how much, but it's how much does it cost. Isn't this what we see when Jesus is in the tempo and the poor widow comes and gives all that she has? The rich people brought large sums of money, but the poor widow came and dropped two copper coins into the, into the basket. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all who, continued, who contributed in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, and she had all that she had to live on. The rich gave, but they did not give out of a heart of joy to the Lord. But the widow literally gave everything she had. And this is what we see when John tells us that when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with alabaster, what did the disciples do? They protested. No, that alabaster, that's too costly. What are you doing? But what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospels proclaim to the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her because she gave everything to the Lord. Both of these women offered all they had because they truly understood that worship is costly. That bringing something to the Lord requires everything. And these gifts that they gave represented their hearts. They were saying unto Jesus, Here, take all of me. 
This was the response to God's grace in Christ the Redeemer. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. As a response, as a response to what they had received in Christ, everything that Christ had done from Romans 1 to 11, he says the proper response is for God's people by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He requires everything from you. God wants your very best. He wants all of you. He doesn't want the garage sale. He doesn't want the time that's left over. He doesn't want leftover energy. He doesn't want your money that you don't know what to do with. He doesn't want the bare minimum. He wants you, and he wants you because he loves you. He wants you, his children, because his father has given up everything because he loves you. Do we give freely and joyfully to the Lord? Do we set aside time to serve him? Or do we give him what's ever left? Do we set aside valuable time to worship him? Or do we only come to worship when Saturday wasn't too busy? Do we set aside time because our hearts desire to be in the presence of our God and king do you tithe based on what's left over in your bank account or do you give to him when your bank account is full worship is costly and God demands all of us to give all of us The offerer, when they brought these sacrifices before the Lord, when they laid their hand upon the animal's head, it was seen that that animal was now given in their place. The animal's blood was shed, and as we will read later in Leviticus 17, the life was in the blood. This animal atoned. Its life was a ransom, one life for another. The sacrifice was killed, and so the offerer was justified, purified, restored, and reconciled to the king. God commanded them to give what was costly. And God gave us something that was costly to him. For when we screwed up our lives, when we completely rejected him, when we were his enemies, Christ came and gave his life for us. Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her, Paul says, that he might sanctify her, that he might set her apart as holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water and the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, that she might reflect him.
Why three offerings? Right? We, we saw that they de decrease in value, but why offer three different offerings that Israel can bring? It might be easy to overlook, but here we find God's full desire that he is going to accommodate to his people. Not everybody could afford a bull. Not everybody could afford a sheep. But God has made a way that all can come to him through grace. And he has given you redemption. Redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Your debt has been paid in Christ. You owe nothing. Come by his grace to a father who has done everything in his power that you might be drawn into his great love that he has for you. He loved us and gave himself up for us. He was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Come with joy. Come with thanksgiving. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Christ. And we now have confidence to draw into the throne room of God by his grace. Because he loves us in Christ. He's the father who saw the prodigal son returning home and ran as fast as he could to greet him and sacrificed the fattened calf because his son had returned home. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit. By grace we are saved in Christ. Amen. Please pray with me.